from the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Folklife Today podcast. I'm Stephen Winnick, and I'm here with my colleague John Fenn. Greetings, everyone. We're folklorists at the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress. John is the head of research and programs, and I'm the center's writer and editor, as well as the creator of the blog Folklife Today, which you can find at blogs.loc.gov folklife. And today on the Folklife Today podcast, we're going to talk about more hidden folklorists. As Steve explained a few episodes ago, in the idea for Hidden Folklorist, he was inspired by the book and film Hidden Figures, and some public events we held at the Library of Congress which focused on that story. The initial idea behind Hidden Folklorist was people whose folklore work was insufficiently recognized for a variety of reasons. Either they were women or African Americans at a time when contributions from these groups were generally under-recognized, or just general bad luck or mitigating factors. And I guess mitigating factors might apply to the first hidden folklorist we'll talk about this time, a man named Charles J. Finger. Sounds good. So, Steve, you wrote about Charles Finger on the blog. How did you come across him, and just who was Charles J. Finger? Well, in brief, he was a writer, and I first came across him when I found his book, Frontier Ballads, in a used bookshop in Maryland. Jennifer Cutting was with me on that little trip and helped me research Finger, so she's here to talk a little about him, too. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, everyone. So what's in Frontier Ballads? Well, Frontier Ballads contains a collection of traditional folk songs, including cowboy standards like The Cowboy's Dream and The Hellbound Train, outlaw ballads like Sam Bass and Jesse James, a few classic ballads like Our Good Man, which Steve wrote about on the blog, and some broadside standards like The Flying Cloud and Morrissey and the Russian Sailor. It even contained a few sea shanties, including Reuben Ranzo and Blow the Man Down. So Steve brought in his copy, and looking at it, I'm very impressed with the woodcuts as well. Yes, there are great woodcut illustrations by Paul Honoré, some of which are colored as well. And another thing that's exciting to folklorists is that Frontier Ballads contains a narrative explanation of where and from whom Finger heard each song. It's a wide-ranging tale, and it shows that he had spent time in South America, including Patagonia and as far south as Cape Horn, as well as in New Mexico, Texas, Arkansas, and other parts of the United States. And in the book, we also read about his time as a sailor, right? Uh, Finding out that he had been shipwrecked. This all seems like kind of a fascinating book. Yes, and to clinch the deal, how about we read the book's subtitle? Okay. Okay, so again, the book is Frontier Ballads, and the subtitle is Songs from Lawless Lands with Some of Their Tunes, as Heard and Set Down by Charles J. Finger, many here printed for the first time, together with a true account of the manner of their singing by gold hunters in the Andes, men on shipboard, hard cases who were beachcombers, fellows in the calaboose, South Sea smugglers, sealers, bartenders, and some who have since achieved fame. Wow. I know, right? So Steve is deciding whether to buy this book, but something about Charles J. Finger sounded really familiar to me. So I grabbed my cell phone and I did a quick Google search, and I found out that we actually have four recordings of his singing in our archive. Yep, it turns out he came here to the Library of Congress in 1937 and was recorded by John and Alan Lomax in the Coolidge Auditorium. Let's hear his recording of the sea shanty, The Amsterdam Maid. Seaman's shanty, sung 
by old-time sailors. The Amsterdam Maid. In Amsterdam I met a maid, mark well what I do say. In Amsterdam I met a maid, and she was mistress of her trade. I'll go no more a roving with you, fair maid. A roving, a roving, since roving's been my ruin. I'll go no more a roving with you, fair maid. I touch this young maid on the knee, mark well what I do say. I touch this young maid on the knee said, she young man, you're very, very free. I'll go no more roving with you, fair maid. All the other boys are roving, are roving, since roving's been my ruin. I'll go no more Again, that was Charles J. Finger singing The Amsterdam Maid here at the Library of Congress in 1937. So, you found out he had made these recordings, and at that point, how could you not buy the book? Exactly. And once I read the book, I became curious and read some of his other books, too. So now you know a little bit more about him. Uh, What do we need to know? Well, Finger was born in Willesden, England in 1867. His father was from Germany, and his mother was from Ireland, and the family moved to a middle-class neighborhood of London when Finger was a child. As a teenager, he rebelled against the kind of Victorian strictures of his home, spending time in the servants' quarters and in the streets whenever he could get away. He briefly attended King's College London, but he left without a degree, and then in the mid-1880s, he studied music in Frankfurt, Germany. His parents immigrated to the United States in 1887, but Finger remained in England, where he became involved with the labor reform movement and the Fabian Society of Socialists. He moved in musical and literary circles, and his friends and acquaintances included William Morris and H.G. Wells. In 1890, he set out on a vacation, but he ran out of money in the Canary Islands, so he joined the crew of a ship that was bound for Chile. And between 1890 and 1895, he traveled around South America, working as a shepherd, a gaucho, a gold prospector, a fur trapper, and a dealer in sealskins. And then in 1893, he served as an overland guide for the Franco-Russian ornithological expedition to Tierra del Fuego. That's quite a busy life. Yes, and he was only just getting started. He went to Texas in 1896, where he found a job in San Angelo herding sheep. And then in 1898, he established the San Angelo Music Conservatory and worked there until 1904, teaching music lessons and arranging concerts and tours. He also worked as a union organizer, and he became a United States citizen. In 1902, Finger got married, and he and his wife started a family, so naturally he needed to make more money. So he joined one of the booming industries of that time, the railroad. 
He began as a boilermaker's helper in a railroad shop and ended up as one of the directors of the Ohio River and Columbus Railway Company. Well, he had quite a lot of careers. But at the beginning of the episode, Steve said that, in short, he was a writer. Yes, believe it or not, he accomplished more as a writer than in these other fields. While he was in Texas in the 1890s, he began writing newspaper and magazine articles for the San Angelo Standard, the Houston Labor Journal, Searchlight Magazine, and other Texas publications. But he didn't get serious until 1916 when he sent a story manuscript to William Marion Reedy, who was editor of The Mirror, which was a nationally renowned magazine of literature and politics based in St. Louis. So did the mirror accept the story? Well, funnily enough, they rejected it. But Reedy encouraged Finger, advising him to write imaginative stories based on fact, what today we might call creative nonfiction. And Finger took his advice. How'd that work out? Well, in 1919, Reedy bought three of Finger's stories and assigned him to review several books, including H.L. Mencken's The American Language. Of course, Reedy knew that Finger was an experienced manager in the railroad industry, and in 1920, in what seemed like a form of succession planning, Reedy offered Finger a job managing the mirror while he took a trip to California. Reedy also promised Finger an ongoing role at the magazine after his return, so Finger later wrote in his autobiography, Reedy and I privately and tentatively planned a glorified mirror in which we were to be co-workers in a way to be presently decided. So that would have been a big life change for Finger. Yes, Finger was living in Ohio, but he bought a farm outside Fayetteville, Arkansas, where he then installed his family, went to St. Louis to run the day-to-day operations of the Mirror until Reedy returned from his trip. And then what happened when Reedy got back? Sadly, he never did get back. How come? He died suddenly in July 1920 while still on his trip to California. It was really sad because only an hour or so before his death, he had written Finger a letter filled with praise for his writing and his handling of the magazine's affairs, which Finger reproduced in his autobiography. So was Finger able to continue on at the Mirror? Sadly, no. The Mirror was bought by an investor, but ultimately scrapped. I checked the last few issues in the stacks of the Library of Congress, and Finger was listed as editor-in-charge, but only for the couple of issues still in the works when Reedy died. Up until then, Reedy was still listed as the editor. So up until then, he was only credited with his own articles, although Finger did write all the editorial columns while Reedy was away. So if you're discerning, you can tell that Finger must have been the editor during that period. So a couple of months after Reedy died, Finger was out of a job almost before it began. A major setback. Yes, but Finger was smart. As the last guy in the office, he realized he had some of the most important assets of the magazine, and they were things no one else would care if he used. What do you mean? Well, first of all, he copied the subscriber list, Mm. which the new owner wasn't planning to use once the magazine was shuttered. And he realized he had the goodwill of the subscribers to whom he could legitimately say he'd been the managing editor for the last few months of The Mirror, and if they liked the magazine, they liked his work. And he used those assets to start his own magazine, which he called All's Well, or The Mirror Repolished. So how'd that go? It went great. All's Well was very well received, and Finger published it almost single-handedly for 15 years, ceasing in 1935. Since it was work he could do from anywhere, he moved to Fayetteville to be with his family and spent the rest of his life there. 
Through the magazine, he came in contact with many writers who encouraged and helped him in his own career, especially Carl Sandburg, who became a good friend. So is that his path to writing books? Exactly. His friends in the industry, like Mencken and Sandberg, helped him along, and his association with the magazine was a great entree to the publishing world as well. So once he started, he was incredibly prolific. Steve found that Finger wrote over 50 books in the last 20 years of his life, and many of those were in the Little Blue Books series. And that was the initiative of the Halderman Julius Publishing Company to create low-priced paperback pocketbooks to help out the working class, right? Exactly. And we have a big collection of these, actually, in our rare book division at the Library of Congress. And uh, his books were really wide-ranging. So Finger wrote biographies of Mark Twain, Robert Burns, P.T. Barnum, and Muhammad. And then he wrote anthologies of historical stories with fantastic titles, Romantic Rascals, Valiant Vagabonds, Courageous Companions, A Book of Strange Murders, and A Book of Gallant Rogues. And on a somewhat more serious note, during the New Deal era, Finger was employed by the Arkansas Writers Program as the original editor of the Arkansas State Guidebook but he passed away before that project was completed. So Finger really was one of the most prolific and well-regarded authors in the state of Arkansas at that time. And that's where he made his mark as a hidden folklorist, correct? Yes, he wrote several books with serious folklore content. And the most famous of these was the 1924 children's book, Tales from Silver Lands, a collection of folk tales from South America which was awarded the Newbery Medal in 1925. Tales from Silverlands was one of the first children's books to feature South American folktales from indigenous peoples. Finger also included contextual information about how he heard the stories and the people who told them, too. Another of his books was the 1924 Robin Hood and His Merry Men, which was Little Blue Book number 538. It's interesting that in his introduction, Finger alludes to the folkloristic theory that Robin Hood is connected to such figures as Odin in Teutonic mythology, and that his various combats are symbolic of the seasons, but he dismisses that idea as little less than nonsense. Then he presents some of the best-known Robin Hood stories and ballads, including Friar Tuck, Guy of Gisborne, and Robin Hood and the Bishop of Hereford, as well as more obscure pieces such as The Noble Fisherman, in which Robin leaves the Greenwood to try his hand as a commercial fisherman. <laughs> That's weird. Um, what format does he use for these stories? Well, for some tales, he prints an entire ballad text, and for others, he retells the story in his own prose. And then for some, he summarizes parts of the story but quotes from the ballads to fill in the details. His book is pretty unusual for its inclusion of traditional ballad texts in a book intended for a non-scholarly audience. Interesting. Um, What other folklore books did he publish, Steve? Well, another book he wrote for the Haldeman Julius Company was Sailor Shanties and Cowboy Songs in 1923, and this was the precursor to frontier ballads and the kernel from which that later book grew. Sailor Shanties and Cowboy Songs established Finger as a very interesting figure among those who wrote down and published folk songs, because there were other former sailors who collected shanties and other former cowboys who collected cowboy songs, but there were few people who were both. So 
Finger's biography provided him with a claim to be one of the most authentic purveyors of these types of folk songs to the reading public. And another interesting thing is that to fit the theme of his later book, Frontier Ballads, Finger cut out many of the sailor songs that had appeared in sailor shanties and cowboy songs. He only included sailor songs in the later book when he remembered them being sung in frontier situations. So the earlier book includes many more sea songs and more discussion of them. In fact, one of the songs Finger sang for the Lomaxes in 1937, Away for the Rio Grande, was published in Sailor Shanties and Cowboy Songs, but then omitted from Frontier Ballads. All right, let's hear it. Shanty, sung by schooner men on the South American coast by Charles J. Finger of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Our cook, he was a very dirty man, sail away for the Rio Grande. The old cook, the food as dirty as he can, sail away for the Rio Grande. Heave away, my boys, heave away, my boys, heave away for the Rio Grand Acoop, he is a very dirty man, sail away for the Rio Grand. Oh, in the bread we found a handful of rocks, sail away for the Rio Grand. And he boiled the coffee in the captain's shop, sail away for the Rio Grand. Heave away, my lad, heave away, my lad, heave away for the Rio Grand. Our cook, he is a very dirty man, sail away for the Rio Grand. Again, that was Away for the Rio Grande, as performed by Charles J. Finger. Now, did they really pronounce Rio that way? They did. I've listened to most of our recordings of sailors' speech, and even when they weren't singing, they said Rio, where, they, where we would say Rio, and even Wind, where we would say Wind. That's fascinating and a little bit strange sounding, <laughs> I guess. Um, so what else do you, do you learn from sailor shanties and cowboy songs? Well, in sailor shanties and cowboy songs... Finger tells how he came to write songs down during his travels, uh, a story he glosses over more lightly in frontier ballads. The story goes that the bosun on the Sea Toller, a schooner on which Finger crewed in South America, was a good singer. So when the Sea Toller was wrecked, the crew had to make their way over land along the coast, including the singing bosun. So I'll read some of his prose about the bosun. He had a face like mahogany, wrinkled and knotted, his hands were like hams. Gray-bearded he was, and very, very profane on all occasions, mm -hmm. but he had a plangent tenor, and from a kind of habit would sing whenever we rested. When we finally reached civilization, and the bosun found himself with a glass of hot grog in hand, he told me that it was my bounden duty to set down all the sailor shanties he had sung— for, said he, since steamers have come in, any clerk or beachcomber acts as a sailor, and them old songs will die out like them Romans you hear tell about. 
The old man went on to say that no man was, nor by any possibility could be, a good sailor unless he knew a shanty for every job on board ship. After a while, being alone on Isla Isabel in the Magellan country and finding time hang heavily on my hands, I did as the old salt had advised me and set down such shanties as I remembered, and later, living among the gauchos and cowboys, kept up the custom, but not so carefully as I should have done. And Finger also says this about the bosun. I remember one night when we were crouched at the base of a cliff that ran at angle so as to shelter us from the wind so piercingly chill, he gave the Amsterdam Maid, a song not at all polite and with references somewhat free, as most sailor songs are, and we joined in the chorus making a kind of part song of it. The old boatswain drilled us like a choir master and lied outrageously, saying that his father was the inventor of the melody. And that's the song we just heard, right? Yes, and the funny thing is that he tells a different story about hearing the Amsterdam maid in Frontier Ballads, in which the crew of his wrecked schooner sings it at a wedding on a Patagonian cattle ranch after they make it safely back to civilization. Maybe it's appropriate that the Amsterdam maid was the song Finger sang twice for the Lomaxes. On the second version, the Lomaxes and Miss Finger, presumably Charles's daughter, sang along on the choruses. Amsterdam Made, a sailor's shanty, sung by Charles J. Finger of Fayetteville, Arkansas, in the Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge Auditorium, Library of Congress, June the 5th, 1937. In Amsterdam I met a maid, mark well what I do say. In Amsterdam I met her maid, and she was mistress of her trade. I'll go no more roaming with you, fair maid. A roving, a roving, since roving's been my ruin. I'll go no more. This fair maid on the toe mark, well, what I do say. I touched this fair maid on the toe, said she, young man, you're very, very low. I'll go no more roving with you, fair maid. All together, boys, uh, roving, since roving's been my ruin, I'll go no more roving with you, fair maid. Make crash there, boys. <laughs> Again, that was the second version of the Amsterdam Maid that Charles Finger recorded for John and Alan Lomax in 1937, right here in the Jefferson Building of the Library of Congress. Now, Steve... In the blog, you referred to Finger as a rogue. What did you mean there? Well, I think that among scholars, some of his practices would be, let's say, frowned upon. And that's one reason why he was never considered a folklorist, even though he knew famous folklorists like Vance Randolph and the Lomaxes. Okay, give me an example. Well, Guy Logsdon 
looked at the cowboy songs in frontier ballads and concluded that they were pretty much the same texts Lomax had already published, much closer to Lomax than you'd expect if he was really collecting anything from oral tradition. So he probably copied some texts from other folklorists. Also, sometimes he told more than one story about how he heard a song. And that was particularly the case with a song called Annie Breen. He told two versions of how he learned the song, which you can read about in more detail on the blog. But then later, in a letter to Alan Lomax that we have here in the archive, he admitted that he mostly made the song up. And to add insult to injury, on Finger's word, John Lomax had included Annie Breen in the second edition of his Cowboy Songs book, which was not yet published but in press and too far along to be changed when Finger admitted the song was made up. And you think that some of his scholarly mischief pertains to the last song he sang for the Lomaxes, right? Yes. The fourth recording he made for the Lomaxes was something called The Old Black Horse. And you can hear him on the disc tell the Lomaxes it was a forecastle song, which means it was sung by sailors in their off hours. But in Frontier Ballads, he said it was a cowboy song that he learned from a cowboy named Turner who professed to have written the song and to have popularized it in a roundup at Cheyenne. And the funny thing is, it's neither a cowboy song nor a sailor song, but it's an English music hall song. It was written by Corny Grain, who was an active singer and pianist on the London music hall scene during Finger's London days, when Finger was himself a music hall pianist in training. It's far more likely that he learned the old black horse before he left London than he did at sea or in a Texas saloon. (laughs) Well, let's go ahead and hear it. Next song is an English sailor song sung by Mr. Charles J. Finger of Fayetteville, Arkansas, June 5th, 1937, in the Elizabeth Sprague Coolidge Auditorium of the Library of Congress in Washington, District of Columbia. The song was sung for the benefit of the folk song collection in the Library of Congress. I was walking one day down Piccadilly Way, a going with a girl of my heart, which her name was Mary Ann, and she kept a tater can, and her father kept a little donkey car. So that very same day down Piccadilly Way that I first saw the old black horse, he was standing on his head with that noble quadruped and a plane at a game of pitch and toss. He had a fine Roman nose and he walked upon his toes, well, I'll take marble day, it is true. And his neck was all awry, and he'd only got one high, and his tail's all a-scribble and a-skew. He was age 33, and he'd one broken knee, and the other one weren't quite sound. And his two hind legs were small, I wouldn't take, for he couldn't hardly put them to the ground. Then it's, oh, hi, oh, the stall in the stable's empty. Oh, hi, oh, and the old black horse is gone. On the morning of the marriage, I hitched him to the carriage, and I thought the old horse was full of beans. But he wouldn't stir a yard, and began a kicking hard, and he kicked the donkey cart to smithereens. Then up I jumped a straddle, though I hadn't got a saddle, and I fetched the old varmint to the whack. Then he gave a sort of wriggle and a funny sort of squiggle, and he sent me all sprawling on my back. Then I'm sure I'd done a houses, but he kept me by the trousers, and he shook me till I thought that I was dead. Then he dropped me in a puddle, and it put aside a muddle, and I hadn't got a toothbrush in my head. Then the people burst out laughing and hollering and chaffing, and the old horse came with delight. But I don't know how it was, but at this thing I am paused, that the old horse died that night. Then it's, oh, hi, oh, the stall in the stable's empty. 
Again, that was The Old Black Horse sung by Charles J. Finger. So, Steve, what did you conclude about this roguish Finger guy? Basically, I'm glad I got to know him and his work. It has its shortcomings, but it's also a lot of fun. And there's more about this on the blog, but my basic conclusion is that AFC's recording of his singing, along with his Newbery Medal for Tales from Silverlands, and his other folklore books, surely make him worthy of inclusion as a hidden folklorist. I'm in agreement. And now we have another hidden folklorist to tell you about. Yeah, when we started this blog series, what quickly developed was a pattern where we identified a lot of people who were actually quite famous for other things, and therefore their folklore work took a back seat. And one of the people in that category was someone that you wrote about, John. That's right. I wrote about the director, Nicholas Ray. And most people would know Nicholas Ray as the director of the classic movie Rebel Without a Cause, right? Yes, and not only that movie. You might also know the films They Live by Night, On Dangerous Ground, or Johnny Guitar, which is listed on the National Film Registry alongside Rebel Without a Cause, and one of my personal favorites. And then there were many other feature films he was involved with during the course of a three-decade career in cinema. So what was his connection to folklore? Back when we did our first Hidden Folklorist episode... Which was episode 7, and everyone who hasn't heard it should listen to it. Yes. Back when we did episode 7, we talked about the novelist Ralph Ellison. And just like Ellison, Nicholas Ray was employed by the Works Progress Administration to collect folklore. In fact, in 1938, as an employee of the Recreation Project of the WPA, he was asked to join the Joint Committee on the Folk Arts, a committee of interested professionals throughout the WPA system, which was headed by Benjamin Botkin and Charles Seeger. It also included folklorists Herbert Halpert and Sidney Robertson. Wow, many of the heavy hitters in our archive. Right. And as part of this committee, he conducted fieldwork in South Dakota for the Recreation Project, resulting in 11 instantaneous disc recordings housed in the Archive of Folk Culture. In fact, let's hear one of those recordings now. This is a local band playing the Irish Washerwoman, and according to the notes with the collection, the singer who butts in with a verse is none other than Nick Ray himself. Great, let's hear it. Irish machine where money was scarce and whiskey was plenty of three-legged stew and the table to match and a big swinging door that you bought with a latch. So, according to the catalog, those recordings were made in Mitchell, South Dakota in October 1939 and include 
folk songs, including minor songs, cowboy songs, and army songs, fiddle tunes, stories about deadwood, and stories and poems about sheep herding. Yes, those are the recordings found in the collection AFC 1939-019, but they don't tell the whole story. So what part of the story do the recordings not tell? In the correspondence that I included in the blog post, Nicholas Ray makes it clear that he wanted to go beyond Mitchell to other areas of South Dakota and even into Michigan, but the government was unable to arrange it. He was frustrated both by being confined to Mitchell and by having only a few hours a day to record, since he had other job duties as part of his assignment there. And he also makes it clear that he had a whole other project in mind, chronicling the origin, development, and decline of the folk theater in America. Apparently, bureaucratic busyness supplanted the work he felt he had been charged to do. We have no idea what that feels like, right? No idea at all. That actually never happens. (laughs) (laughs) But he did capture some gems. So let's hear a poem about sheep herding from the Mitchell Sessions. Okay. This is Archer Gilfillan reciting a short piece of what we might consider found poetry. That'll make more sense after you hear his intro. The following poem was printed on the back of a menu at a banquet of the Montana wool growers held at Helena, Montana. It was composed by a college graduate who was herding sheep at the time. The poem is as follows. This morning, from a dreamless sleep, I woke to hear the goddamned sheep begin their daily serenade. As, wandering through an upland glade, they sought with woolly enterprise to furnish me with exercise by putting, ere the evening lamp, eight miles between themselves and camp. Wow. So what happened after the Mitchell sessions? Ray's connection to the WPA appears not to have lasted much longer, and he didn't engage in any more folklore collecting activity for which we have any records. But his relationship with Alan Lomax continued, as it would until Ray's death in 1979. And that led to some radio work, didn't it? Yes. At the start of the 1940s, Ray and Lomax began working on the CBS serial radio program, Back Where I Come From. It ran three evenings a week between August 1940 and February 1941, and each 15-minute episode showcased live performances of folk music and storytelling by a host of artists, the Golden Gate Quartet, Woody Guthrie, Burl Ives, Pete Seeger, Aunt Molly Jackson, and Josh White among them. Lomax and Ray collaborated on the script writing, while Ray directed the 43 episodes that aired. You can hear some of those episodes over at the Association for Cultural Equities website, by the way. And here at the AFC, we have a range of manuscript and sound recording holdings documenting the production of Back Where I Come From. And you mentioned their relationship continuing until Ray's death? That's right. When Ray passed away in 1979, Alan Lomax made notes for a eulogy or obituary in which he uses terms like big, warm, laughing, powerful, friendly, and supportive. Those notes are part of the AFC's Lomax Manuscript Collections. Wow, another great hidden folklorist. Indeed, but as the more commonly known historical record shows, Ray shifted toward film as his primary medium of expression. He launched his cinema career with They Live by Night, a sort of pointillist film noir that wrapped production in 1947. It didn't see release until 1949 due to internal complications at RKO Studios, another professional frustration of many that dotted Ray's career. 
He never returned directly to the realm of folklore, but his artistic output on through the early 70s explored the types of individualistic and liminal culture that he had identified during his stint as a field worker back in South Dakota. So, even though he didn't think of himself professionally as a folklorist, we'll take him on the team. Absolutely. Now it's time to credit our team. So big thanks to John Gold, our engineer, and to Mike Turpin and Jay Kinlock of the Music Division for help with the studio, and of course to our guest, Jennifer Cutting. Yeah, thanks, Jennifer. My pleasure. We also want to thank our colleagues throughout the Library of Congress who help us deploy this podcast once we make it. Uh, to John and Alan Lomax, Nicholas Ray, Charles J. Finger, and the artists that they recorded, the Mitchell Orchestra from Mitchell, South Dakota, which consisted of Clark Kenyon, John Sawyer, and an unknown Bones player, and Archer Gillifin. I'd also like to thank Todd Harvey for help on the research for the Nicholas Ray blog post. Of course, thanks to you too, Steve. And to you, John, and thanks to all our listeners. But before you go, why don't we hear one more recording by Nicholas Ray to play us out. This is Paul Martin, recorded October 1939 in Mitchell, South Dakota, singing his original cowboy song, The Sunburned Cowboy, on Folklife Today. This is Paul Martin from White River, South Dakota. I lived on a ranch there from the time I was about two and a half years old. When I was about 19, I went to Chicago and lived there for six months. But I hated this city, and when I came back and started riding the range again, I composed this song. Oh, I'm a sunburned cowboy riding o'er the range. I don't want the meadows when I have the plains. When the golden sun sets over the rolling hills at evening, is when I feel the thrill of ecstasy. I know that in the city I would never dwell because the campfire calls me still. Oh, I'm a carefree ranger riding o'er the plains. A cowboy's once are very few Camping on the range When a million stars come out And light the purple hills And Kyle's howling at the fading moon I know that on the prairie I will always stay To live my lonely cowboy way Cowboy way away. Well, uh, the reason I don't like cowboy songs is from hearing them over the radio and these so-called cowboy singers singing them through their noses. If they were sang properly, I think I would like them very much. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov.